Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. Yeah, it's totally unacceptable. That's Dr. Rudy Yanish, a researcher at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. What he is calling unacceptable is the experiment that led to gene-edited children who had been gene-edited before their birth. You'll hear more from Dr. Yanish in a moment, just some context. In the late summer of 2018, I received what we journalists sometimes call a heads-up email. Journalists get a lot of those. This particular heads-up was about the upcoming Second International Summit on Human Gene Editing that focused on the latest science related to human gene editing. It was going to be a surprising meeting, I heard. Okay, I didn't really know what to think, but I thought I would tune in. Genetics, genomics, gene editing, those are always important topics for me among the many topics that I keep an eye on journalistically. Then, on November 25th, 2018, as you may recall, there was big news related to gene editing. A lab at Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen, China, the lab was run by He Zhangqi, had experimented with human embryos. The team had edited the genomes of two human embryos. They fertilized eggs in the test tube. The eggs were from a woman who had, it seems, agreed to the process. They fertilized the eggs with the sperm from her husband. Then they gene edited the embryos, implanted the embryos into the uterus of the woman from whom they had removed the eggs. The pregnancy went to term. Well, almost. Twins were born from this pregnancy. They were born slightly prematurely. He Zhangqui called the two of them Lulu and Nana in his talk at the summit and didn't disclose they had been born prematurely. He had been invited to speak at the conference but hadn't planned to speak about the children. When the news broke, he changed his talk around. He was eventually arrested and sent to jail along with two others in his lab. There are three children whose genomes have been edited before their birth. Three that we know of, twins Lulu and Nana, and a third child from a different mother and father, and I call this child Amy. At his talk in Hong Kong, He Zhangqui disclosed that there was a third pregnancy. That was all he said. It has always felt important to me to find out about these children. What had happened to them? How are they doing? I kept asking people about them. How might their health have been affected by this heritable gene editing? I kept digging around. Lots of secrecy and rumor to dig through. Three years later, I've published a story in Nature Biotechnology called The CRISPR Children. And this rolling series of podcasts is to accompany this story to share more of what I have found out thus far. There is so much secrecy about these children. Lulu, Nana, and the third child, who was never given a name in public. I'm just calling her Amy. At locations in China known to a select few, the girls are growing up with their parents. They are around three years old. The girls are purportedly doing well, sources tell me. This is hard to verify, and of course, I don't want to infringe on their privacy or dignity, but I've always been concerned about what happened to these CRISPR babies, as they are sometimes called, who are now CRISPR children. A few people have seen photos of the children. Others have spoken to their parents. In all likelihood, the girls are genetically mosaic, which means some, but probably not all of their cells, have edited genomes. So that's unlike the typical situation of our bodies in which all cells have identical genomes. At first, Chinese authorities greeted this news about the gene-edited babies with enthusiasm and quickly backtracked as it became clear how outraged the world was about this human experimentation. 
It's three years later, and several reports have been issued. A number of books have been written and published about these events, and many articles have appeared about them too. But I have been surprised and puzzled about how little has focused on the children themselves. Of course, their privacy needs to be maintained, and their dignity has to remain untarnished. But what happened to them exactly? What experiments were done? And what kinds of health ramifications might this have for their lives? And since these have been heritable changes, if they choose to have children, how will the lives of their children and grandchildren be affected? As I set out to find out more, I was surprised how difficult it was to find out what had happened. It was a surprise to me how many scientists I queried got their backs up when I inquired with them. They refused to comment and didn't want any part of an article that talked about these experiments. Odd. But some people did agree to chat, and I'm grateful to them, so this is a rolling series about some things I've heard. I have a number of sources whom I can't name for various reasons. They told me much that has helped me report this story in Nature Biotechnology. My editors there have been so supportive of this project, and I sure am grateful for that. Of course, a lot is still not known, and there's so much secrecy and rumor. Lulu and Nana's parents have reportedly been threatened. There have been calls to bar the children from attending school with others. That's so sad. When I told Stephen Salzberg, a genomics researcher at Johns Hopkins University, about this, he calls this a crime against complete innocence. How are the children? Sources tell me they're okay, which may or may not be true. I hope it's true. The scientists responsible for the gene editing were not acting alone. There was a lab. There were supporters, not just in China. He Kui kept many in the loop about what he was doing. There was a circle of trust, as my journalistic colleague at Science, John Cohen, has phrased this in a fab article that he's done. When He Kui was doing these experiments and the work was underway, he actively began reaching out to labs as if he was seeking more supporters for his plan. He set out to visit with scientists. Rudy Yenish of the Whitehead Institute got a visit from He Zhangqui. Yenish works with stem cells and is the first scientist to have generated transgenic mice. So in February 2018, Rudy Yenish gets a visit from He Zhangqui. Dr. Yenish thought it was going to be a discussion about science. Yeah, he, came in, he came in February before. The announcement was done in, in, in November, and he came in February. Um, and just maybe done, and he wanted to get approval from labs here. I think he went to other labs, um, and of course, um, it was absolutely not, not acceptable. I, I didn't at this point realize that he might have done it. I thought the guy's maybe thinking about it, but can talk him out of this. What he was thinking about, well, what he had already done and was looking for approval after the fact for, so it seemed, was an experiment to edit the CCR5 gene the CC chemokine receptor type 5 gene, which encodes a co-receptor for HIV. It's a kind of molecular doorknob for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. His idea was to generate people who were resistant to HIV by editing this gene. For his experiments, He Kui chose HIV discordant couples. The wife was HIV negative, the husband HIV positive, but being treated with antiretroviral drugs. Somebody came to my office and wanted to suggest the experiment. I said, this is not, there's no justification to do this. And I, I couldn't take him see it. He had already done it. So it was very strange. Um, so this is this experiment is totally unacceptable, obviously. There was no medical need 
for these 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 um, uh, embryos or girls now to have this done because if you want the the infection with with AIDS from the mother is or from the father is very low. You can prevent it, and if you get AIDS, you can treat it somatically. It's been done now, so so there's no need to do the germline. And the, the the side effects, the potential side effects by knocking out this receptor, could be very serious because you might be more susceptible to other viruses like the coronavirus. Um, um, so, so there could be a real disadvantage if the experiment even worked. So I think it was totally unacceptable. Hmm. If you would have made yes cells, it would be fine. I think then we might have learned something about uh, how efficient that is and, and all these things. Instead of implanting the embryos, perhaps he might have used the embryos to generate embryonic stem cells to do basic research only, to learn, for example, how efficient gene editing is, to see, for example, how many cells remain unedited in spite of having been exposed to CRISPR reagents. He could have explored other scientific questions, such as where off-targets can occur, but that was not the goal. Well, viable embryos, but he would convert them to yes cells. That's allowed okay. under the right under the right conditions. But he chose to implant them to make the first edited humans, and that was just because I mean this is outrageous. So that certainly is a is, is a no no. Hmm. I mean, there was no justification for this. The lab's plan had been to use HIV as a kind of test case to show how one can edit human embryos to prevent disease. Hajan Kui and a friend and mentor, John Zhang, who owns a company called New Hope Fertility, had been, according to sources, planning a joint commercial venture, an in vitro fertilization clinic to offer to people who wanted to become parents to make gene-edited babies. This is not approved anywhere. Germline gene editing is not an approach that is condoned or accepted. Hajan Kui and John Zhang are not the first to come up with this idea of gene-edited children as a service. Walter Isaacson, in his biography of the Nobel laureate Jennifer Doudna, recounts that in March 2014, Lauren Buchmann approached Doudna's colleague, Dr. Sam Sternberg, who is at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. The proposal was about a commercial venture called Happy Healthy Baby. The plan at Happy Healthy Baby was to use CRISPR to generate gene-edited babies. It appears that project has been abandoned, but there might be others. Back to the gene-edited babies we know about, Lulu, Nana, and Amy. Gene-editing technology is not ready for any kind of application in people to do what is called germline genome editing. One of the biggest scientific barriers is mosaicism. When gene editing is performed with today's technology, instead of just editing the genomes in the fertilized egg, cell division starts, the CRISPR reagents are still active, there are two cells or perhaps four or more, some cells end up edited and some are unedited. What this leads to is a body with cells with non-identical genomes. This is called genetic mosaicism. It's likely the genomes of the gene-edited girls, that would be Lulu and Nana and Amy, are mosaic. If you wanted to assess if an embryo is mosaic, well, that's scientifically practically impossible. Here's Rudy Yenish. So mosaicism is, is a principal problem. You cannot assess whether your manipulation worked or not by biopsy. So by, by, you can take a, a blastomere, one cell, right, what they do for pre-implantation diagnosis, 
easy and analyze it. But if it's a mosaic, you don't know whether the embryo, um, whether you have an edited part of the embryo or non-edited one. So it's impossible. It is basically impossible to verify whether your um, manipulation um, worked or not. Uh-huh. Right, even if you could do this in a single cell, single cell taking a biopsy basically from the embryo, it it would not help. So mosaicism is a big complication with germline gene editing, and the gene edited children, three of them that we know of, are mosaic. It is quite hard to know if this mosaicism has health consequences or not. I spoke with a few scientists about this, and there is more about this in other podcasts and in my article. Basically, there is no way to assess all cells in the body to see if mosaicism is causing a health issue. It can, and it might, and it might not. Which is yet another reason why some scientists told me it's definitely too early to apply CRISPR for these kinds of applications. If embryo editing were approved, and this is just a thought experiment because it is not permissible, but stick with me here on a thought experiment. If you wanted to do this experiment, you would need to assess if the gene editing worked. The way to do that would be to make sure there are, so to speak, extra cells, cells one can test and that are identical to the ones in the embryo. You could make and assess clonal embryonic stem cells, called ES cells for short, but there are still difficulties. Here's Rudy Yenish. You get clonal ES cells, and from this you can um, likely really... um conclude what happened. I mean, the, the issue, of course, is m- many of these embryos, when they're edited at the one-cell stage, will be mosaic. Uh, in, in mouse and in human also, it could be 50% or more. And then if you have a given ES cell, which comes, of course, from one cell, um, then it might be uh, not the edited one. Rudy Yenish works on gene editing in mice. Mosaicism rates can be as high as 50% in mouse embryos, he says. Oh, yeah, no, we saw this We saw this uh, seven years ago in mice. Uh, it was very clear. It was a very high percentage, and we, we measured it. So 50, the, 50, 5-0, it can be as high as this. Yeah, 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 5-0, yeah, yeah, maybe more. So it's really not clear. Maybe this is solvable at some point, but in the moment, that's what it is. Oh. And is this due, let's say, in in mice, is this due to the fact that, I'm just going to make this up because I just don't know better, that the guide RNA wasn't right or the CRISPR keeps cutting? No, no, or... no, no, no. No, no. The, oh. no, no, the guide RNA is perfectly fine. Everything is fine. It's only that the integration or the cutting took place after the one-cell stage, maybe at the two-cell stage. If it takes place at the two-cell stage, in one cell and not at the other, you have a mosaic. It's a mix of cells. Half of the cells will be uh, wild type, half of and and unedited. The other one be edited. And of course, when you make a biopsy later, you never know which one you got. You can't really diagnose um, um, an embryo being correctly edited or even edited at all by a biopsy. It wouldn't work because you might get a mosaic and then you don't know what you got. Mosaicism is a problem, perhaps an insurmountable one. If heritable gene editing is to ever be considered, and only if it's approved, and there's consensus about it in society, if heritable gene editing is to be considered, one approach, scientists say, is to not edit embryos, but to edit the genomes in germ cells, egg or sperm. For example, one idea is to edit cells in people that give rise to sperm, and those would be spermatogonial stem cells. For example, Harvard Medical School researcher George Church has presented this as a way to perform 
heritable gene editing, if this is approved and deemed ethically acceptable. One would edit these stem cells that give rise to sperm, or one might use induced pluripotent stem cells that are differentiated into eggs. Rudy Yenish agrees with this idea from George Church. He's totally right. I totally agree with this. So spermatogony stem cells, or they can be even oocytes, for mice at least. From IPS cells, they can make oocytes, which can be fertilized. The point is, both of these cells that you can clone. So spermatogonial stem cells you can clone. So you can edit um, a cell, uh, make several clones, and take one clone and do any analysis you want. Since clonal, you can take them as siblings. If you if you then satisfied everything is fine, you can then inject the other clone and um, into the pet testes, for example, or fertilize with this. Right. So this would be indeed a way to verify what you did. You, you have two sibling clones, one you analyze everything, and then you satisfy the other one, will, have, will be the same because they're sibling clones, right? And you can do this not only with sperm, you can do it also with oocyte, at least in mice. In humans, it has not been done yet, but it will probably work. So in, in, in mice, but you can take iPS cells and differentiate them to oocytes, which can be fertilized. So then you can do everything on the iPS level. And be sure you have the right IBS cell, which is edited the right way, and then you make from those clones, you make then oocytes, which could be fertilized. So with induced pluripotent stem cells, you can differentiate them into oocytes or egg cells, which you can fertilize. Rudy Yenish is talking about mice here, but in theory one can do this with human eggs. When performing this work with spermatogonial stem cells, you do not get mature sperm. They are immature and cannot fertilize an egg on their own. But you can inject them into an egg in a process called ICSI. ICSI stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. It's done in in vitro fertilization and was also used to fertilize the eggs that ultimately led to Lulu, Nana, and Amy. Here's Rudy Yenish about using spermatogonial stem cells. If you make sperm, so, so you can't make mature sperm, but you can make immature sperm. You can do it they don't fertilize by themselves, but you inject them. You can, it's an ICSI, it's called, it's done in the clinic. Uh, so ICSI means sperm injection into a, into an unfertilized oocyte, and it has been shown in mice that gives, uh, if you put this into a, a, an egg, then you get mice. So it's a proof of principle. When experimenting in mice to explore gene editing, as many labs do, including the Yanish lab, one always has to keep in mind that mice and human cells are different, and gene editing can work differently in mice than in humans. I think there could be clearly differences in in in, in, in humans and in, in, in mice in these type of things. I think that's always something you have to consider. Yes. Yeah, it could be repair enzymes. Could be. I mean, metabolism is different in human and mice. That's been done. That from it could be also repair process. One day, and that day is not now one might consider performing gene editing in human embryos, and one might choose to edit germ cells. If you do it with the spermatogonial stem cells, what the church, I agree with him, then I think the scientific issues might go away. So then it becomes an ethical issue. Do you want to do this under what circumstances? If you do it with embryos, in addition to the ethical issues, you have also scientific issues, which we talked about. Mother assessment, these things, right? Not being able to assess what you did. So that's, but let's distinguish these things. So embryos have two major issues, scientific as well as ethical. Spermatogonial stem cells, maybe only ethical. And 
is a key one, of course, right? Do you want to do this? Under what circumstances? For what? That's really, these are important questions. Resolving if and when to use heritable gene editing still needs lots of discussion. When it comes to preventing disease, heritable gene editing might not be the only option. Here's Rudy Yenish. But most of the cases you could do this by pre-indentation diagnosis because most parents will will have, let's say, 50, in a dominant disease, 50% normal embryos you can select. You don't need this, right? So now the big question is, under what circumstances would this be the only option? So if you have a Huntington's, Huntington's is a dominant disease. If you have a homozygous Huntington, which is very, very rare, there's no way such a person could have a healthy related kid. No way. So that might be the only time where you would consider that. Such scenarios were discussed by the National Academy of Sciences panel that included Yenish. This panel convened and published a report that was before He Jean-Cui did his experiments. To avoid heritable conditions such as those that can lead to an infant's early death and for which no therapy exists, parents can choose in vitro fertilization and pre-implantation diagnosis. A cell from the embryo is checked to see if the embryo has the inherited disorder. You can always do pre-implantation diagnosis. It's very rare that you can't. If both, both parents are homozygous for recessive disease, I mean, there's no way they can get a healthy child. But if, if one is homozygous, the other one is not, you still get the recessive. 50% of the embryos, or actually more, will be normal. They may be carriers, but they're normal. It's very few instances where you would need that. And oh, then you right. still would argue, is it really, should you do this or not? I mean, this is all, this is a very complicated questions. Indeed, these are very complicated questions, and it will take discussion to resolve these. And open discussion is better than secrecy and rumor. Many scientists did not wish to talk about these questions with me. But I am so grateful to Rudy Yenish for the fact that he did take the time to chat about them. And just adding this here, the Whitehead Institute, or MIT, did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. In the notes to the show are links to the story I did for Nature Biotechnology and some of the resources I have drawn on in reporting the story. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.